We started last week our journey through the epistles of Peter, Peter the Apostle. And we do that because we come to it and we certainly feel the relevance of his letters because he was writing to believers who were living in a culture, a society that was hostile to the gospel, hostile to the church, contrary to the people of God. And so as we come to this, we hear God's voice instructing this as his people to encourage us so that we might not lose hope, but rest in our everlasting hope for his name's sake and for the good of our neighbors. And so we come this morning to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. This is God's word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the praise, uh, to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. You do not now see him. You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that you have now been been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. I had to say that uh, there are certain texts of Scripture when you read them and come to them, even as a pastor, and you wonder, how can I communicate the weight of God's truth? You feel so inadequate because... Of the goodness of grace that you see in that text. This is one of those texts. And so I will do my best. But I pray that God's Spirit will encourage you, Christian, encourage you of the hope that is yours. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We're thankful for its unchanging truth, for the goodness of the gospel and all the benefits that are ours in Christ. Impress these things upon us so that you might create a living hope so that we might live for your glory and namesake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when life becomes difficult, how do you actually celebrate anything? 
I mean, joy doesn't make sense when you're faced with hardship, does it? When hostility and suffering, when, when difficult times fall upon you, you just do not feel like celebrating anything. And yet joy is the very thing that God's people have manifested in this world through some of the most difficult circumstances. How is it that people, when threatened with horrible things like imprisonment or even their death, continue to be faithful to Christ, continue to believe in the gospel and worship God and remain faithful to His world, or word? How do they do that? And last week as we started this journey through the, the letter of First Peter, we learned that his initial audience were, were finding their faith in the gospel was coming into conflict with an ever-growing hostile culture. The believers in what is now modern-day Turkey were living in a situation not entirely unlike what we're beginning to feel even in our Western society today. They were ostracized by their neighbors. They were cut off from economic opportunities. They were slandered and ridiculed in the public square. They were considered to be the enemies of the state, the enemies of the culture. It hardly seems like a cause for celebration, a time to rejoice. And yet, rejoicing is precisely the thing that Peter offers as a means of carrying on in the face of that difficult time. In other words, he reminds his readers, he reminds us that the reason that we worship is so that we might have hope. And he does that by worshiping God himself. For these words here, which is actually from verse 3 to verse 12, is one sentence in the Greek language. It's, it's a long sentence. But it is a doxology. It is a, a hymn of praise, of worship to the Lord. And it is in our worship of God that we find hope that does give us joy that rises above the suffering and the trials and the conflicts that we face in this life. So let's look at Peter's doxology of deliverance. What is a doxology? Well, we said it's, it's a hymn of praise. It's a, it's a liturgical form of praise offered up to God. And so after his grace-filled greeting, He just pours out his heart in worship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's praising God for who he is and for what he has done. And that forms the very foundation of the life of God's covenant people. It's it's rooted in his promise to be a God to them. See, God in his essence In the essence of his being, he is worthy of all worship. That is why he makes us his people. And if it wasn't within the essence of his being to be worthy of worship, he would not be God. Peter uses here an old formula of praise. 
We find it often throughout the Old Testament, used by David and Moses and others. Sprinkled throughout the Old Testament history is the expression of praise, blessed be the Lord, or blessed be the Lord of hosts. You see different forms of it, but it's it's communicating the same thing, praising God for who he is and what he has done. It was sung in the covenant worship of the Old Testament people of God, as recorded in 1 Chronicles 16, where we read these words words, uh, say also, this is what they were to say, save us, O God, of our salvation and gather and deliver us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, amen and praised the Lord. And now, On the far side of the cross, Peter takes that familiar form of praise, blessed be the Lord, and he adds to it the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is he doing? He's he's praising God as the Father uh, for revealing the Son. He's praising God for the revelation of Christ, for, for making Jesus known. He is praising him for the gospel. And why does he do that? Well, because it is Christ Jesus who is the mediator of God's grace. It is Christ Jesus who enables people to be brought into that new covenant relationship with him. It is Jesus Christ who brings people back to God, reconciling them by closing that gap that our sin had created. And so now we can do what we've been created and called to do. Now they can worship Him. Worshiping Him for what He has done. Worshiping Him because we belong to Him. And it is from that act of worship that this enduring hope that strengthens God's people arises and prepares them for all the suffering and trials that this hostile world will throw at them. You see, as we worship God, we worship him not only for who he is, God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, but for what he has done, we praise him for his work of mercy. And that is the exact thing for which Peter offers up this doxology. You see, when you worship God and you remember what he has done, it cannot help but spark some hope in difficult circumstances. And what has God done? Well, He has given us an active hope. Not a superficial hope, but a living, breathing, active hope. Peter explains that God, according to His mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And the focus here is that God has caused His people to be reborn. Now, when we hear that term born again, a lot of times we think of it in an experiential way. Uh, We think of it as an experience, like a coming to Jesus moment. And while the new birth can be dramatic and may be accompanied by some remarkable story of conversion, the focus isn't so much on experience because it's not your experience that saves you. It's Jesus Christ's. 
And so the real thrust of being born again, the real focus is on your identity. You are born again. Now, when you are physically born, what does that give you? It obviously gives you life in this world. It gives you an identity. It makes you who you are. Where you are born, to whom you are born, determines your citizenship, your ethnicity, your culture, your heritage, to to whom you are related. It shapes your likes and your dislikes, the food and the drink that you enjoy, the traditions that you celebrate. And the same is true of the new birth in Christ. The new birth gives you an identity as one who belongs to, to God, someone who is part of his covenant family. And so now you have the, all those traditions, all that belongs to the kingdom of God is yours. He makes you someone who is part of his covenant family. Peter says, God, according to his mercy, caused believers to be born again to this living hope. Mercy itself here is a covenantal word. It it speaks of God's faithfulness, his faithful love towards his people. Mercy is God remembering what he has promised to do for those who belong to him. And it is this enduring mercy of God and his promise It goes way back to that original covenant he made with his people. In fact, we can look back to Sinai where he makes a covenant promise after he gives them the law and he says to the people there, I I will show steadfast love, that is mercy, to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So from God's mercy He causes us then to be born again. He causes us based on his promise to have this new identity, this new hope. As Peter writes, you are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. And so it is through Jesus' death and his resurrection, those who were once not God's people are made God's people. That's the new citizenship, the new home, the new culture that is yours in Christ. That is the living hope that Peter speaks of. And as we worship God, we are reminded of that. We are reminded of this living hope. And being a living hope is what distinguishes it from all sorts of other hopes that people have in this life. In something that is living, something that is alive, it is active, it is moving, it has a heartbeat, it breathes, it grows, it is not static. Only the hope in Christ can be called a living hope. You see, all other hopes ultimately end. They die. Because all other saviors, all other things that we might trust are dead and ineffective saviors. They are nothing more than mere wishes upon a star. And despite what Disney tells you, your dreams don't come true at the end. But Christ remains true always. And what he has promised will come to pass. And I think most people understand 
that the hopes this world holds out are not lasting. That's why they jump from hope to hope because they feel them failing and they're looking for that one hope that will endure. You see, the reason there's so much misery in this world, why there is so much hopelessness is because people are looking for hope in all the wrong places. They hope things will be better. They hope for wars to end, for conflicts to cease, for better health, for better times. And they might get a taste of those for a moment, but they're simply a flash in the pan and some new crisis emerges. Yes, the world is full of hopelessness because the world is full of suffering. And so people turn from one Savior to another looking for something better. But the Christian's hope, the believer's hope, the hope of the gospel is so different. It isn't a dead hope. And that is why Peter tells us we are born again to this living hope through what? Through the resurrection of Christ. You see, our hope as believers isn't isn't just in an idea or a thought. It is in a person. It is in the living person of Christ. Peter describes this hope further as he moves into verses 4 and 5. He says, you've been born again to this living hope through the resurrection of Christ to, and here's another word for the hope, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So this living hope is also an inheritance. What's an inheritance? It's a possession. It's possessed. uh, It is something that has been promised legally that you will receive usually after the death of a family member. In the Old Testament, God promised an inheritance to his people. And that inheritance was pictured through the land promises he gave to the nation of Israel. That's why it was called the promised land. But the promised land of Israel wasn't meant to be the promised land. It pointed to the promised land. You see, after the death of Christ and his resurrection, that promised inheritance expanded. It is not just a small region, a small strip of land in the Middle East by the Mediterranean Sea. Now, This promised land is the entire world. It is made up of people from every nation. It is the new heavens and the new earth given to all God's people from all time. Abraham, who first heard of a promised land of inheritance, understood this. He knew that it wasn't a promise simply for Canaan, but a promise that went far beyond Canaan. As we read in Hebrews chapter 11, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going, by faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city 
that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Being an inheritance made by God would far exceed any earthly promised inheritance. And so Peter describes this inheritance that belongs to God's people, that belongs to you if you are in Christ, as being imperishable. It is not subject to decay or death. It does not fade away. It is undefiled. It is not marred or stained by blemish and any form of corruption or pollution of sin. And it is unfading. It is everlasting, never diminishing. And he says, it is kept, it is guarded or watched by God himself in heaven for you. Meaning that it is guaranteed by his grace. It is there. You will not lose it. I mean, never has there been a nation or a kingdom, a promised inheritance like that in the history of the world except for God's kingdom. In the nations to whom we pledge earthly allegiance, they so often fail us. And yet, we hold on to them as if they are absolutely vital. But there is no earthly nation promised to be eternal. So our hope as believers is not in the power of the state to make this world better. It is not in nations and leaders and judges and senators or presidents or prime ministers. We don't hope to make righteousness reign in this world through protests and laws and voting. But righteousness does reign because Jesus Christ, the righteous one, already is seated on his throne. And that means when we we feel this world turn against us in all of its hostility, and we feel the winds of the culture blowing upon us, as Peter's first audience did, we still have hope. We have a living hope, an inheritance, the very same one that was promised to Abraham for which he hoped The same one that Moses sought as he led the people of Israel through the wilderness. The same one for which David longed. A son that would sit on his throne forever and ever. The same inheritance that was promised to the children of Israel in exile by prophet after prophet. That inheritance, believer, is yours if you stand in the mercy of the Father. It is yours right now. Not only is this living hope an inheritance that is guarded by God, but you see what else Peter says? The the heirs, the people receiving it, those of us who are Christ, we are guarded by God as well. He says in verse 5, we are kept by God's power, being guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The very same God who keeps the promised inheritance guards the promised heirs. And at the right time, that salvation will be finally fulfilled or revealed. That time, of course, is the coming of Christ our Lord. 
So then this, this doxology of deliverance reminds us of a living hope, which is a promised inheritance that is our final salvation. And all of that is yours if you have received God's covenant mercy, causing you to be born again to this new life through the resurrected Christ. Worshiping God creates that hope in our hearts. And so what do God's people do when they feel the culture and society turning against them? We do what we've been created to do, what we have been saved to do. We worship. Whenever persecution has flared up across the globe and and in whatever part of history and part of the world this has happened, God's people never stopped worshiping Him. In fact, they did it all the more. It was even more precious to them because in that worship, they found the hope to carry on. They worshiped Him in the catacombs of Rome and in the caves of Turkey. They worshiped Him in cellars and cramped apartments as they do to this day in China and North Korea. They gathered to worship God in the remote forests and icy cold winters of the the Soviet Russia. When the world turns against us, we don't stop singing our psalms and our hymns and praying to the Father and proclaiming His Word and celebrating His sacraments. No, we do those things all the more because they confirm our hope and strengthen our faith. They tell us, no, we are but sojourners here. We are waiting for that better land. And we will continue to worship our God as we journey onward to that land. We rejoice, as Peter says in verse 6, we rejoice, we worship, even though we still face suffering in this life. Peter does not promise believers that they will escape suffering and trials in the present. He doesn't promise them prosperity. He doesn't promise them their best life now. In fact, it sounds pretty horrible. He says in verse 6, You rejoice in your living hope, your inheritance, your salvation, though for a little while, if necessary, you will have been grieved by various trials. The gospel doesn't promise an easy life. In fact, sometimes life gets harder for those who are faithful to Christ. But it does promise a better life for those who are His. Because it's a promise of life that is never ending, free of sin and suffering in death forever. And so the trials we experience are but temporary in comparison to that everlasting living hope that is ours. That's why He says, though for a little while, a little while, He wants them to remember that. It's just a short while. I mean, what are weeks and days and years in comparison to eternity? They are nothing. Of course, in the moment, suffering can feel like it will never end. The fact that we have a living hope and that we can rejoice does not mean that the pain and the distress and the hardship are less real. And they can be overwhelming. 
And perhaps you feel and find yourself in that situation right now. But God says to you, He says to you right now, I understand, but it's only a short while. Just wait. Wait for the time to pass. Furthermore, we see that the suffering and trials that we experience as God's people in this life are not empty. They are not vain. They are not without meaning. God's people do not suffer senseless trials. For through those various trials of life, especially those that come upon us because of our faith in Christ, our faith is tested. And that is a good thing. Indeed, as Peter says in verse 7, that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so through the pain and suffering in this life, our faith is tested as gold is tested in a furnace of fire. And in the end, The faith that endures is said to be genuine, real, authentic faith that saves. Faith that results in that unfading inheritance. But there is more to what Peter is saying here about this testing that trials bring upon our faith. It's not so much that it purifies our faith. But it's the fact that faith, unlike gold, actually endures the fire. You see, gold will melt and eventually it will be destroyed if you just turn the heat up high enough. Everything material in this world burns up under enough heat. But faith doesn't. It cannot. Because it is God's gift to you that makes you His child. And so the heavens and the earth, they may melt away and a new heaven and earth come, but the promised inheritance of God is yours forever because of the genuineness of your faith that does not melt away. For you have that faith because you are kept by God. Suffering has a way, it's interesting, of removing from us all the gold, all the the glitter, all the things that we are tempted to hold on to and to hope in. So that the only thing that we have left is our faith in Christ. We are tempted by so many other things to trust in those things. Our idol-making hearts look to our work and to our family and our success and our social status and, and human government and science and philosophy and medicine and entertainment and pleasure as the source of joy, the source of hope. But when the pressure comes, when the trials come and those things melt away, what's the only thing that remains? It is your faith in Christ. Suffering takes those things away so that all you have is Christ Jesus and suddenly the beauty of your faith emerges. As Keller said, you don't realize Jesus is all you need till Jesus is all you have. And that's the point 
that Peter's getting at in verses 8 and 9. Though you haven't seen Jesus, you still love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice. You worship with what? With a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See, that's that tie again between our faith and worship. Because as we worship God, our faith is renewed. It is strengthened. It grows. That's the doxology of our deliverance. We are God's people. And it is manifested through our worship of Him. What that means is this, is that even though you might suffer in this life for Christ, even though it seems that you are at a great disadvantage when you look at this life as a child of God, the truth is you are actually more privileged than the prophets of old and the angels of heaven. That's what Peter says in verses 10 and 12 concerning this salvation, this inheritance, this living hope. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, that's you and me, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring at what time, uh, what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, us, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. And as a Christian living in this moment now, you have better knowledge of this salvation that is yours in Christ than the prophets of old. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Joe, Micah, Elijah, Elisha, all the prophets, you are more privileged than they because of the knowledge of Christ that has been revealed to you. They wanted to know when this promised living hope would be. They searched for it diligently. After all, they were looking for that city made without hands, that complete deliverance from sin. And it was revealed to them that it would not be in their time, but that the Savior would come at another time. And He has come, and He has died, and He has risen, and He is living, and that promise now is for you. But all their knowledge, all their experience that they had does not compare to what has been given to you as a child of God. You know Christ. You, you sit at His table. You worship Him every week with His church numbered amongst His people. To you has been given the full knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that advantage over the prophets would be amazing if that's all the gospel gave us. But there's more. Because as Peter says, this salvation that is yours, this living hope, this unfading inheritance, this great deliverance that is guarded for you as he guards you, all of that is something into which the angels 
of heaven wish they could look. They peer into it, gazing into it, and they marvel at the grace of God to his people. That's the doxology of our deliverance. It's a a story of redemption, the story of Christ crucified and risen to give his people a new and living hope that rises above all earthly suffering. And no fire can burn that away. No prison can shut it away from sight. No loss of profit, status, or even life can erase who you are in Jesus Christ. He has made you his own. You have been born again. And so what do we do when the world tells us uh, you can't have that identity? You can't rest in Christ. We stand up and we worship. We keep on worshiping. We keep on praising our God because in our worship, our hope is renewed and our faith overcomes. In our doxology, we find our deliverance. Let us pray. Father in heaven, indeed we praise you for the great gift of the gospel. Words cannot express the richness and the depth that is there in your grace. Even as we read these words of Peter, we feel that we only scratch the surface of your mercy towards us. And so Father, as we do that, help us to marvel, help us to wonder. And in that marveling and that wonderment, may we worship you. For in that worship, we will find comfort. We will find peace. We will find joy that is indescribable, that surpasses whatever suffering we might be experiencing in this short moment. So sustain your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.